0: You are listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. Oneofus.net and all of the shows on it are 100% subscriber supported. Please consider becoming a subscriber to oneofus.net. Keep the site and all of our great shows going and get some terrific bonus content as well. Time for yet another Digital Noise. This Woo-woo. one following very close on the heels of the last one. That's just the way the timing works out sometimes. Except the last one was with John Golson, and this one is with...
1: Aaron. You know, I was really jealous about John's, and I had to get in here really quick. Yeah,
0: you were like, well, yeah. well, fuck you, John. I'm going to watch mine faster. <laughs> I'm be all on this. And much like John's show, we have a sizable stack of movies to talk about this week. With,
1: with a... Decent percentage of really great gens. Like I was kind of surprised. You're a little
0: happier about this than I, this list than I am. But I'm not I still—they're all good. <laughs> I, but there are some good ones in here. There are some weak ones in here. Hey, it's digital noise. That's the usual mix. Uh, before we get started, please don't forget to click on the actual Amazon links on the page. If you click on those, it brings you to the product on the Amazon that we are talking about, and you can buy it from there. We get a nice little kickback. Or if you start with those links and buy anything from amazon as long as you start from our links we get a nice little kickback we appreciate it also please consider becoming a subscriber we're like so very very serious it's this site cannot run without you guys it is a matter of desperation like if you wonder about sometimes why i'm on less stuff that's because i don't make enough to just do this uh and it it really i mean i'm stuck in a position because of my schedule. I have to go do pickup jobs and jobs that don't pay a whole lot, but that's the only jobs I can do, because if I do a full-time job, I can't really do this site. Yeah. It doesn't work. This is way too much work. So the more subscribers, the more content you get. And now we are adding, uh, the the gathering is taking a hi- hiatus for a little while, which is the brown coat $5 a month subscription level, and it's being replaced for a few months by the original gentleman, which is returning with myself, Martin Thomas, and David Beau Paul talking about comics, television shows, and much more in a sort of old men grumbling about things show. As well, we've already started our new season of Watch a Movie With Us, our commentary tracks for Time Lords, with (laughs) our run of doing all the Star Wars films. Aaron here was just on the one we just put out for Attack of the Clones. Uh, Next week, we're putting up Revenge of the Sith... It's, we're going straight through, people. This is brave. You should be paying us. I'm just saying. This is this is for your it's, benefit. You asked for this. It's the rough part. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know. We're about to get back on. I'm back on track. But the the first three are the hardest. After that, it's you know, it's not too bad.
1: It evens out. It evens out. It gets good. More or less, with, with varying
0: differences, varying but but everything after Revenge of the Sith is better
1: than the first three films. This is true that they are at least watchable and entertaining. Yes.
0: Uh, but speaking of watchable and entertaining, we're here to talk about all the uh, films that are on home release right now, and we're going to start off with a little film that kind of took me by surprise, I would like to say, and that is I, uh, A Vigilante. Yes. Um, I thought this sounded pretty interesting from the trailer. Uh, it's a directorial debut of Sarah Degard Nixon. I don't know if I'm saying her middle name. And I think and, she
1: wrote this as well.
0: Yes, she did. And it is starring Olivia Wilde, who is playing a mega badass who basically takes jobs as lo- to go and beat the shit out of people. Not kill, mind you, but like threaten to kill, essentially. People who are uh, the victim, uh, the the perpetrators of domestic violence. So what you know in whatever capacity it is, which is to say, probably usually men, but well, yeah. not always.
1: It, so it's probably usually men. They they do a good job of showing that a this afflicts more than just white women. It afflicts more than just women. It, it, it hits kids as well. And it, the one thing I'll say though is that as much as she is a surprising badass and does a great job acting in this, this movie was a lot. More of a drama than I really into expecting oh, yeah. it to be. Yeah, it's not really an action
0: film, although there are aspects of that in yeah. here to be sure. I mean, it's so focused on the drama level of the narrative because as it goes along, non linearly showing her when she was herself defenseless and beaten up and in a terrible state. We're kind of learning her
1: story in drips and drabs. Although, one thing I want to call out, for all that we're talking about her being shown in that kind of defenseless state post uh, the big event that caused the turn in her life, one thing this movie does that I I really was flabbergasted by is, barring a three-minute sequence at the very end... At no point in this movie do you actually see abuse. Uh, That's it, true. It, it ends up not being... Because like, like, going into this movie, I really expected it to be she is the lady punisher, and right. there are women getting raped and beaten all over the place, and instead, it's a lot more melancholy. The scenes that are intense are amazingly intense and fearful, but a lot of it's spent looking at the after effects of abuse. And I don't mean like, yes, she's sitting there broken and bleeding. I mean, for the rest of your life, they right. spend a lot of time in uh, support groups and there are stories by women who were actually abused, who tell their real stories on camera. It is harrowing. It is. And it is disturbing at points, although not terribly graphic no.
0: per se, just like it's dealing just with honest. it in a way that's being very realistic and it gets very disturbing in the third act, which leads to her ending up confronting the her own personal abuser, who is no lightweight. Like, most your average abuser is, like, somebody who is doing it to make up for the fact that they probably aren't terribly masculine themselves in a oh, lot of he cases. Is. <laughs> uh, he is himself where she started to learn the stuff that she knows, uh, like, all the badassness, uh, because he was, like, a survivalist and was, like... And basically, after he went full-blown gonzo and killed her child, <laughs> like, he disappeared. So, And so now it's like her life has been about the hunt for this guy. That's
1: actually kind of the only part that where the movie lost me, because there is a brief period in there that, again, it's only like two minutes, so it's not a big deal. Where you actually do see what her relationship with him would have been like, he, he does abuse her briefly, and, and then of course it's it's back into more of an antagonist relationship. I, I really wish they hadn't had that two or three minutes because it would have been nice to have seen this movie go the entire length and have it be entirely about abuse without ever doing that tropey thing where we have to watch a woman getting punished. Yeah, but like like that aside. This movie was phenomenal. I mean, I, I I was drastically surprised by it. I was texting my wife, going, I, I can't tell if you have to watch this movie or hmm. you should never watch this movie. <laughs> and also, one cool thing I realized when I was watching the credits. Not one single abusive man is ever actually named in this movie. Right. Uh, They're all known as, like, uh, the husband or... I'm blanking (laughs) on her name, but... Like, they're identified in their relationships with the women. Right. Uh, Yeah. I I love this movie.
0: I, I wasn't as crazy about it as you were, but I still really admired it. And I think Olivia Wilde just nails the hell out of this performance here. She is so good in here. She is quickly deeply impressing me as one of the more talented actresses working right now who got off to kind of a rough start, I thought, in her career. Yeah, like,
1: uh, the last time I remember seeing her was Tron, where she was not great, but I I don't think it's her fault. It wasn't her fault. (laughs) But still, like, that and then... The same week I learn about Booksmart is the week I see this movie. And so right? Yeah, she's having like, a go- oh, shit, she's having- amazing. She's having a good year. Yeah, directing Booksmart, which is really a must
0: see. Really super incredible. But um I don't think if I'd put this on quite the same level as Booksmart as far as must see. But I it is it, it is solid. Um There's only one extra feature on here, which is called Catharsis: Creating a Vigilante, which I did watch and thought was interesting. interesting. Right. It's not super long, but there's enough of like them sort of explaining what was in their head when they were creating this thing in the first place, which well, is it, the kind of thing you want to know.
1: It, it's where, like, they start talking about the making those scenes of the Halfway Homes very honest. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's where I pulled a lot of that from. Agreed. Uh, and
0: next up we have Cold Pursuit, which uh, is funny. It was one of those type things. What was the original thing title? this? Do you remember? Uh, it had, like, a title. Everybody was making fun
1: of it. No. Uh, and, and I, I can't remember. It had... Remember. S- it had- The Daddy Skarsgård in the the Liam Neeson.
0: No, 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 no. Not the original movie. I mean, when this remake was coming out, it had a different title. It was like Something Powder or something like that. I can't remember. It was like a really silly action movie type name, and everybody was laughing at it, and then they changed it to Cold Pursuit. All right. So, yes, this is a remake of a really great uh, foreign language film from Norway in 2014 called In Order of Disappearance.
1: And in many ways, it's pretty much the exact same film. Because it's it's directed by the same guy. It, it is directed, directed by, the
0: yeah, uh, Hans uh, Petter Molland, uh, his first American film. He was like, well, if anybody's going to do this film, it's going to be me because that was my movie. And he comes over and he makes what largely amounts to the exact same movie. There are some differences. There's some Americanizations. And there's the simple fact that you're replacing Stellan Starr- Skarsgård with Liam Neeson right there is going to make a, make a difference. But I think... This movie didn't get the audience it deserved because they sold it very much as another Liam Neeson action movie. Cool. But what it is is more of a sort of wry, light, dark comedy in the vein of almost something like Fargo.
1: Yeah, so the my expectations of this movie were drastically different. So it's about a snowplow driver just outside of Denver, which I admit I spent like half the movie debating, can you make a living year-round as a snowplow driver? Somebody's got to do it. But... Um, who whose son is murdered uh, and it's made to look like he had a heroin overdose, which right away, when I was originally seeing the trailers for this, I thought his son OD'd, and it was just right. not being able to deal with it. But he's like, no, m- my son is not a druggie. I-, I know for a fact. And starts trying to discover what really happened and basically... Kind of goes Punisher and murders his way up the chain of command of the people who murdered his son. Right, just like
0: giving me the information. He's no ex-military guy or anything. He's just kind of a burly outdoorsman. Yeah, he's just who is an like,
1: everyday guy who's, who's broken. Can't handle. Yeah, he's
0: uh, about to kill himself when he finds when someone basically the uh, someone who survived like the situation with his son appears and is like, this is what actually happened, and it was like a gangland thing, and he's like, oh. Well, in that case, I'm killing the wrong person.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> and, yeah, he decides he's going to go up the ladder, which is funny. We see very early on the top of the ladder is this kind of smarmy, youngish, yuppie guy
1: <laughs> who, who is, uh, tries to be, like, super woke with uh, getting, giving his kid really really healthy options, but is just one step short of child abuse. Yeah. Oh no. I mean, I don't even think it's one. No, shot no, no. It's not It is. It is it's just Like uh, he, he's like, yeah, that guy's like trying to control every aspect the, of his young child's life. You know, th- this movie reminded me a lot of a comedy version of like Wind River, okay. uh, w- I which can is, see that like, I, 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 they're both in the snow. It's a, dramed- a lot of I love. killing. It's it's a dr- dramedy. Dramatic action, I guess, where there it's a lot of drama and fun, but it's a dark It's kind of a darkly violent movie, and yeah, I-, I find myself drawn to this genre a lot. It gets very
0: brutal with the killings, yeah, for sure. I mean, some of them are pretty heavy duty. And like, if you think of the original title, which they do call out towards the, at the very end credits where they literally show everybody who was in the movie and then it says in order of disappearance and their names disappear off the screen in the order they died in the movie, <laughs> uh, which they also is kind of a running gag that every time someone dies, the screen goes to black and they show that character's name and like a little symbol that relates to them in some yeah. way and, and RIP in their birth and death dates. Um, It's an interesting gimmick that I felt played a little bit stronger in the original version, but it's still okay here. And the thing is, the guy, like I said, he really doesn't know what he's doing. He's kind of stumbling his way through this. There's a lot of sheer, if you're going to look at it
1: with a skeptical eye, there's a lot of sheer luck that he gets as far up as he does. It it feels like a magical realism kind of movie, actually, especially hmm. when it starts getting into um, kind of being about... Uh, just a little bit, uh, the encroachments on Native American land Mm -hmm. and kind of how we dealt with that. Like, it kind of starts to be an analog for that. That stuff is
0: there. It doesn't entirely know what to do with it. Uh, and it's there definitely, it feels more focused on that stuff than the original one did, and that didn't really know what to do with it either. But this one, because it's focusing on it more and it's still, doesn't really seem clear on what it's trying to say about it. Cause there's like another, like outside of the main yuppie guy and his group of drug deal, white drug dealers. There's the native American guys who are like, uh, uh, I guess, uh, first nation people who are like themselves involved in the drug trade and are kind of at odds with this other group. And because somebody is killing the, the white guys group, they assume it must be their only other competition, which is the Native American guys, and they sort of lash out at them. And so it turns into one of those, like, you know, th- there's no way this guy could single-handedly take on, both, like, this group. So by luck, he ends up in a situation where they're
1: kind of taking each other out. <laughs> and the only thing that really bugged me about this movie is it ends on a joke that kind of undercuts the previous five minutes, which I was really into, mm. that there's like this really kind of melancholy moody. just sit back and think about everything that happened ending, mm. and then the last three seconds is, and joke, which is just like, okay, okay, that Killed it. But, okay, cool.
0: I, I didn't kill for me, but it was a very more Liam Neeson moment than the rest of this movie, which doesn't feel like your ty- typical Liam Neeson output. This is considerably better than your average Liam Neeson
1: action uh, film. Honestly, this was almost my pick of the week. Oh, wow. Uh, th- th- there was one other title that came in and ended up swooping it out from underneath there but. Uh, Laura
0: Dern plays his wife briefly uh, in this she leaves him rather quickly and at Emmy Rossum is one of the, the main cops in here Tom Bateman is Bateman is uh, from Da Vinci's Demons and Jekyll and Hyde and Murder in the Orange Express plays the drug lord William Forsyth plays the best <laughs> best friend of uh, Liam Neeson who himself
1: once was involved in Wait, crime that was I sw- swore that was his brother the whole movie no it was his brother
0: Oh yeah, i sorry. Same- You're
1: right. It is his
0: brother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, by the way, I thought this was original funny. In the original, the character was named Dickman, and this one he's called Coxman. <laughs> <laughs> thought that was kind of funny. Um, Julia Jones, Raúl Trujillo, uh, Michael Eklund, David O'Hara. It's a Ben Cotton. There's a decent cast of like recognizable character actors who appear throughout this because it's a relatively large cast of people who aren't always in the movie for a very long period yeah. of time because with the title like in the order of disappearance or in this case cold pursuit a lot of people have to die for it yeah to, to mean anything but i i did have a lot of fun with this even with watching the original i still i don't know which i would recommend they're both pretty good
1: in their I, own right i would recommend this movie wholeheartedly like i, I haven't seen "In order of disappearance mm-hmm. it's on my list of i want to's but I, I had no qualms about saying this is a worthy
0: watch. The Blu-ray's got a, a little under a half hour uh, behind the scenes on Cold Pursuit uh, with with some interviews and them having fun. There's a uh, n- about an, an eight and a half minute interview with Liam Neeson. There's an eight and a half minute interview with the director. There's five and a half minutes of deleted scenes. So that's what you get if you pick up Cold Pursuit, which like I said, I think is well worth your time. Uh, sticking to cold titles, we're going with Iceman. Now there's <laughs> been uh, a lot of Movies with Iceman in the title, strangely? Yeah, I discovered that when I was
1: trying to add this to my uh, letterbox. Yeah.
0: <laughs> uh, this one is just called Iceman. It is originally titled Derman o- Os Dem Ice. I don't know if that is even close to the correct pronunciation here. But this is obviously not an uh, American-made film. Although the language, is speaking, is not the native language of where it was made. Which I'm actually not entirely sure on. Um, but it was in a re-etic dialect. It's not even subtitled. Basically,
1: the movie movie takes place in the Neolithic era, so it is not a language that is alive in any way, shape, or form. And so it's not subtitled. They speak in a language we don't understand. So the idea is that the movie is told almost entirely through the visuals. Right. That's the story. Watching what the characters are doing and reacting. And And
0: it's a very simple revenge story.
1: Yeah. So I found myself attracted to this genre a lot as I've been doing these movies. The, like, here's a culture that we have no real connection to, and we're watching how they survive in this kind of era. And like as much as it's a revenge film, it's really more of a man-against-nature movie. Because, like, yes, he's on this hunt for revenge, but... There's not a ton of violence or action in it. I mean, when when it's there, it's incredibly brutal. And and so, basically, to jump into the story, uh, the main character is the leader of this tribe. And he goes out hunting. uh, And while he's out hunting, uh, three guys come in and kill everyone. Yep. His wife, the villagers, his kid everyone but a single baby who is another villager's child and they steal this holy artifact. Yeah. And so he Not nothing done in Dragon's E, just no, like no, no, a no, box just, filled just, with cool
0: with cool shit they found.
1: Yeah, it's a, <laughs> a thing, you know. Yeah. It's the it's the briefcase from the Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction. Yeah. So he picks up the baby, gets a goat to feed it and sets off in pursuit of the of the guys. And that's kind of the movie is them going after them and kind of just trying to survive in this cold, harsh wasteland of an environment. I really ended up liking this movie a lot. They, they do a lot with steady cams in this film. So the, there's a ton of sequences where they'll spend like three or four minutes without cutting. Like, I think the entire attack is there's maybe one cut in the whole thing. And so the, the way they move the camera ends up really doing a good job of pulling you in. Uh, this was also the movie that uh, ended up getting me to finally sit down and color correct my TV, huh. because this movie is super, super cold. Uh, you know, it's lots of white and blue. Oh, yeah. And my TV already trended blue, and so I got pissed off of my wife and my family bitching about the blue and sat down, and I was like, fine, I'm going to do it. <laughs> but uh yeah he, he pursues these guys at one point he runs into a old man and his daughter and the old man is played by um oh, God, not not any more that's the composer It was Django, and i'm blanking on his name was it? yeah it blew me away when i saw him in the credits but um huh. so he, he i did not him. realize that yep. he, wait um w- what's his face
0: um the Italian actor. Yes. Uh, are you sure? I'm not seeing his. Oh, uh, Franco Nero. Yeah, You're right. Franco Nero.
1: Yeah, um, yeah Franco Nero's got to get paid, brother. And, <laughs> like, it's a really simple movie, but I got into it. The violence is really brutal. It's also honest. Like, the characters make mistakes, they stumble. No one's a martial artist. <laughs> no. Um, I mean, the guy
0: is like. Uh, honest to god badass there's a reason he's leading his tribe because he is like a all in like the guy take gets wounded and like almost all but shrugs
1: it off you know it's just like no i got shit to do the only thing that really bugged me about the movie and kept me from again going like wow i love this is again it's the ending uh they the way they end it in the last about 30 seconds wraps it up so effectively with a bow and it's so on the nose that it was just it was too pat for me. I wanted something a little more complex and a little more open-ended than what they gave me. I,
0: I, I, I don't know. I mean, like one of the reasons that it ended the way it, it does to some degree is because this is based on speculation around the oldest preserved human body ever found. Like oh. this character is based on what they could discern from t- testing on this body they found frozen in ice, okay, which did, had like the I, I did not know that which had like the blood of four different people on him, and like there was like all these things that they put together weird little things. They're like, oh well, there's clearly at one point he had an infant with him, and then oh he was shot through the shoulder with a bow and all this stuff. It was like, oh, so they took oh. those little bits and what they knew about the history and speculated okay. this
1: story around. It. I'll admit, if I knew that, I think I would have been a little bit more okay with the ending. I was thinking in about it from a narrative sense. Right. I- but yeah, I still like, thought it was okay. I mean, like you said, it's a movie without any actual
0: understandable dialogue. Like no one speaks this, so there's no one who can who is like, oh, no, it's fine. I speak this language. I understood no one. This was not made for people to anyone to understand yeah, what they're perfect. saying.
1: But you get the gist I of it. Tell me if you didn't understand everything that happened.
0: Yeah, I mean, like we said, it's a very simple story. It's yeah. not hard to piece together what's going on here. It's supposed to be. It is a revenge revenge story crossed with man against nature and man versus man. You know, it's it's very well shot. In fact, this was shot for IMAX.
1: This was originally put out I in IMAX that. theaters,
0: which is kind of weird. They only put it out on DVD.
1: Yeah, I, yeah. I agree. Yeah. yeah. Like, I, this is a movie I ended up going. I really
0: oh, wait. My just, mistake. They did put it out on Blu-ray. They just didn't send it to me. Okay. I was going to say.
1: I, I wanted a Blu-ray version of this mm. movie because it's a gorgeous film. Or it's at least, very well shot. Well, let me say that. It looks like a gorgeous film. I'm assuming if you watch it in the proper transfer and not a an old 4, 480 <laughs> DVD, it's a gorgeous movie. <laughs> Yeah,
0: it's very beautifully shot, but I will say this for me dragged a bit. I did not like this as much as you did, and it's just barely over 90 minutes. When it's going, it's going. It's strong. And like I said, it's beautifully shot, but like there are points I'm like, okay, come on, let's get to the yeah, next you, thing.
1: I think you really have to have an interest in watching just kind of how people like this survived. And like th- that's a big draw of the movie. And sure. if, if you're not into that, yeah, this is going to drag big time. And honestly, as much as I thoroughly enjoyed this movie, I can't really recommend it because it's v- it's for a niche audience, most definitely. Oh, yeah, most definitely.
0: Uh, our next movie is from Kino Lober, sort of their, uh, hey, you should watch this old-ass movie that people don't remember anymore because it's <laughs> cool and fuck you if you don't like it. The Man Who Haunted Himself. Oh. Arrow has a division much like that they call Arrow Academy. We'll talk about one of their films next. But this is an oddball fucking movie that I can't believe exists. This is one of those movies when you're like trying to look through the history of cinema and find these movies that were just, you can't believe a movie this weird came out when it did. It's 1970. It's Roger Moore in the lead uh, right before he got cast as James Bond. And you can totally tell, like, he may yeah. have already been talks about. There's even a Bond joke in the movie.
1: Yeah, there is. that they, uh, they, they crack on, on Her Majesty's Secret Service.
0: I yes. Uh, and uh, this was director ba- English director Basil Dearden's uh, final film before Ooh. he died in 1971 in a car accident.
1: Actually, in, uh, you might be about to drop the same fact that I'm about to. Apparently, his car accident was in the same stretch of road where they actually shot the car accident in the movie. That I did not Like, realize. he basically had exactly happened to him, what happens in the beginning of this movie.
0: Well, this is based on a novel, The Strange Case of Mr. Pelham by Anthony Anthony Armstrong, who was previously uh, adapted into an episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Um, This was a obviously much more extended version of that. Uh, Roger Moore said after the fact this was his favorite film he was ever in, which... Which is bizarre, because it's not a great movie. It's just so goddamn odd and so fucking 70s. Like, it's swinging 70s, you know? It's like, he's this staid type of Englishman (laughs) who gets, suddenly he's like, he's driving and he kind of loses control. Like, he's like, I'm going to drive super fast! And he gets in a horrible car accident, and he comes out of it. And like after months in the hospital, I guess, and like barely make, yeah, he barely make, survives, but it's like picks up again after he's okay and he's going back to work and everybody's why he's got wife and kids. Everybody's concerned about it. He's like, now he's a very proper Englishman and. People keep saying they saw him somewhere else. Like, oh, you're there. Here's that money of you from playing uh, snooker. (laughs) And he's like, (laughs) I don't play that, so I don't know what you're talking about. By the way,
1: snooker is not picking up hookers, which is what I legit thought it was the entire
0: (laughs) film. It's well, I mean, it is that too. But yeah, if you've ever been to a like a a snooker hall, you know it's lousy with hookers. I don't know. I've never played the game. I cannot say. It's like pool, but totally different and not as good. Okay, (laughs) I guess that's my my prediction. But he. He's like, yeah, It's everything turns upside down as this starts happening more and more. And people are like, oh, you did this crazy thing. Well, you're a party animal. And he's like, that is not me. And even to the point of like this woman who's like, yeah, we're having an affair. And he's like, ah!
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, like, I think I may have screwed myself out of enjoying this movie because I did not like it. Um, in the beginning, when we see the initial car wreck, like, two minutes into this movie, I went, oh. He clearly has multiple personality disorder. And that's what we're watching. We're watching a movie about a guy who has the, this. And in the 70s, they just hadn't accepted it yet. And so it was a big twist. And I'm waiting for the big twist to happen. And so that's how I viewed this whole movie. To where, at the end, stuff starts to happen that makes no sense whatsoever. Right. I mean, it's a, it's a, more of a it, Twilight Zone effect. It's type very twist. different. And then as... Uh, I was so confused by that and so put off by it that I went up and started researching it online. Apparently, there's a lot of hints throughout the movie that I just did not pick up on. Like, when his other personality takes over in the car, the car changes to a different kind of car. Oh, yeah. I completely missed that when I was
0: watching it. This is almost almost a parallel universes crashing into each other
1: yeah. movie in a weird sort <laughs> and, of way. Yeah. Like, I I still don't entirely understand how the end was supposed to make any narrative sense, Uh, because it doesn't. I mean, overall, the, like, so this is what happened,
0: and you're like, and how? Yeah. And the movie is not concerned with the how. It just is. And it doesn't bother me, because it doesn't spend too much time thinking about it, That's fair. And,
1: like... The acting is good. Yeah. Roger shot, Moore is well, great in it. Like it's one of those things where I forget. I've spent so many years making fun of Roger Moore's Bond because he's the silly Bond. That right. you forget he's he's a legitimately good actor, mm-hmm. and the director does a legitimately good job in this movie. I think this movie just wasn't for me. Mm. Like I can see that this could appeal to a lot of people who enjoy those kind of weird 70s offbeat movies that just don't really entirely make sense. I love the
0: weird swinging Britain campy 70s stuff and this is like right in there but it's odd because it doesn't present itself as that um, initially it slowly becomes that it it, it takes its time to get into that. It it was more my kind of movie I think that was yours and I like it's kind of sexy you know there's like some lots of gorgeous ladies wearing a minimum of clothing uh, like slinking around and he's like horrified oh no oh the (laughs) vapors. (laughs) (laughs) and it's kind of it's very funny that watching these two i mean it's clearly some sort of reflection as well of what was happening in england at that time and the in classes reaction to this other craziness that was going on and so there's a lot of that undercurrent there i don't know i had fun with it it's a movie i would love to see someone do like a low-budget indie remake of today in today's world and find a way to make a reflection here with today's world somehow I I, I would be into that that'd be fun Uh, there's an audio commentary that was recorded obviously a while ago because Roger Moore's on it and he's been dead for quite some years now um, sadly Uh, with also the writer producer Brian Forbes and journalist Jonathan Sothcott and there is a very good Masters of Horror Joe Dante and Stuart Gordon the great reanimator director Stuart Gordon on the man who haunted himself for 18 minutes with the two of them talking about like why this film had such a huge impact on them and why they think it's a great film There you go. Which is pretty cool. Uh, All right. Well, let's move on to our next film, which is The Big Clock. The Big Clock. (laughs) I don't say it like that. It's just The Big Clock. Um, This is the aforementioned Arrow Academy movie, which is Arrow. puts out a lot of very awesome and some not as awesome campy and and, uh, C-grade and and spaghetti westerns and Yakuza movies. But stuff that they give with all the love and adoration that Criterion gives Ingmar Bergman films, Uh, this is kind of their series of like much more obscure, much older movies, and often they're noir films in the series.
1: A lot of the times when they put out those older films, at least the ones you've given me in the past, I feel that they tend to be, uh, I put this in quotes, but like important movies, where you can see that there's a lot of relevance to what's going on today, or they're about Social dynamics and wealth inequality. This is the first one they put out that I've watched where it was like, oh, this is just kind of a a cool little noir movie. Okay. Yeah, it's
0: almost not even, it's almost a noir comedy, really. It's got a lot of comedy aspects in it that don't all work, but it still is kind of a fascinating little movie, even if the comedy is kind of a little off kilter. They're trying to mix in sort of low level screwball stuff into this and it doesn't always fit completely comfortably with it well it, it,
1: even when the screwball doesn't work though it, it manages just to kind of lighten up the mood a bit so it's not just a dour movie because if they didn't have that screwball comedy this would just be very flat and dour so it, it right it helps It well, helps quite a bit
0: uh so this is directed by John Farrow, who actually won the Academy Award for Around the World in 80 Days, in uh, which I've still never gotten around to seeing. I have not seen it either. But uh, this opens with Ray Milland; He's the editor-in-chief of this crime magazine uh, where he is – when we first see him, he's hiding from b- building security inside of the huge clock in the building. He's all sweaty and nervous. And we're like, what's going on? And there's a voiceover like, chill out. I'll explain it. Okay. Flashback <laughs> to, what, a day or so later – uh, and uh, he's very excited to go on his honeymoon, essentially with his
1: wife to West Virginia, <laughs> who he's been married to for five years. Yeah, but he I think they
0: even have a kid. It's yeah, and Maureen <laughs> O'Sullivan plays his wife, and uh, he's like, "No, I'm this is it, honey. I'm telling you, nothing the boss is going to say is going to change my mind because he's like indispensable at work. He's like the guy who's like." They can't do this without him. He's that big a part of the cog. But the boss is famous for always getting his way. It's played by Charles Lawton, who, if anybody can play a character that's famous for always getting his way, it's Charles Lawton.
1: Who uh, does a
0: great job, too. It's Charles Lawton. Yeah. Uh, and he's like, oh no, there's this new missing uh, person story that you brought to us. You've got to handle it. And he's like, nope, nope, nope. I'm not going to do it. And he goes, well, if you won't do it, uh, I'm just saying don't come back and thinking, He's not going to call his bluff and he calls his bluff and go, okay, see ya. I promise the wife. She means more to me than this job. I, I am in fact going to leave. So, um, he goes to a bar cause he's like, uh, oh, a little bit like that was even, I played it off cool, but I'm kind of fucked up by that. I'm going to go have a drink. And, uh, he meets Rita Johnson who basically, uh, Argues who's a journalist who argues yeah I've got problems with this guy as well and I think we could have a blackmail plan together against him and he's like I don't want anything to do with that uh you know get away from me lady you drive me crazy he loses tracks tracks of time he misses his his train to meet up with his wife and he's like fuck <laughs> this day sucks. Uh, and she leaves to go to West Virginia without him, which I can't, what do you do there? I don't know. She
1: leaves and she also (laughs) is convinced that he's fucking around on her. Right. I think every scene the wife is in ends with her going, yeah, go back to your hussy.
0: Right. Well, so he decides to go out with this lady. I'm sorry. I said journalist. I was getting this mixed up with another movie, but she's like, um, we discover a little bit later. She is in fact, the, um mistress of Charles Lawton's character. But they're both pissed off, and they get super drunk, and they go around, and they do all this stuff all over town. And basically, after he drops her off, Charles Lawton shows up and murders her uh, in a jealous fit of rage. And then is like, but he has no idea that his employee was the guy she was out with all night. So he is trying to find out who she was out with that night. And- uh, uh, Milan is trying to figure out who actually killed her, realizing that if it comes out that he was the one that was hanging out with her all night, it's going to look a lot like he did it. And he knows he didn't. So it's kind of this double search with the boss has got a detective, a kind of slimy detective. And also... Um, what is his name? Uh, H- Henry Morgan, who played the, the captain on MASH. He was like the fixer. Yeah. He was like a, a, bru- like, man, when that guy looked young, he was a the bruiser bruise. looking scary guy. <laughs> but, uh, with, I think George McCready as, as kind of the, the number two to, to the, the evil boss trying he, to he fix the Michael whole situation. <laughs> and it's just watching this guy, Ray Milan, running around trying to like figure out like, okay, uh, I need to be able to have proof that I that she exists. Yeah. Right? Like, this happened well, the way I said it did.
1: It's everybody trying to prove and disprove the same event. Right. So, like, everyone's trying to find out who the other party is. Everyone's trying to uh, manipulate the evidence to make the other people look guilty while they look innocent. And they keep going back and forth. Like... It runs pretty tight overall. It's pretty nerve-wracking
0: at points, watching this play out the way it does, and the performances are so strong. But I really found myself, because early on, Rita Johnson is so good as the the lady in question, the body, that it was really sad when she's not in the movie anymore. I was like, oh, I was loving her in this. The
1: actors all do a great job, uh, and I think they pull a lot of weight while... During the performance of this movie, but the story itself kind of falls apart at a few points where it does. Like, people are doing things that just don't make sense and they leave the body for a long time. Yeah, the body's and, there for like two days or yeah, something. And, yeah. I, and I never quite understood exactly what Crime Wave magazine does because they seemingly are solving crimes. Yeah, it's like just reporting true, on true them. True Crimes magazine so, like, that the, like investigative journalism. I, I, I ended up. I kept being pulled out of the movie, not by anything that was the fault of the actors, but because I kept going. Wait, what? That's the way this works. <laughs> that's what you're doing here. Yeah, so, like it, it was okay. It's it's not it's, it's okay. Time.
0: It's not an all time classic. But if you like film noir stuff, I think oh, this is well worth your
1: time. Absolutely. Like like the, again, this is one of those movies like Iceman. That's it's a niche movie. If this is your cup of tea, you're going to really enjoy this. I still and, think and I mean, Charles Lawton. Turns La- in an amazing.
0: Lawton is great. I'm still, I've just, and I know Ray Milland is considered to be great, but he's one of those actors that has just never completely resonated with me. And I don't completely buy him in this part. And that's on me. It's not that he's doing a bad job. I just, there's something about him. It was like, well,
1: he, he kind of has this. It's just arm. like,
0: this is his not, he should be a heavy, not the good guy. Yeah. You know? And I'm like, yeah. okay, I don't, I don't buy it. But anyway, there's an audio commentary on here by a critic. There's turning back the clock for 23 minutes, which is appreciation and analysis by uh executive with film London. There's 17 minutes of a difficult actor, which is specifically about Charles okay. Lawton. Who's that's famous. I was talking
1: about. So like, I listened to a little bit of the commentary and, this movie might be worth checking out just for the commentary. Oh, okay. It's, it's three film historians kind of talking about this movie, but really talking about the state of noir cinema at this time. Oh, okay. And so it's, it, at least the parts that I listen to is like this roving historical conversation. And then the bit on Charles Lawton uh, is an interview with this... Uh, and I apologize because I I know he's a real person, but an overly pretentious uh, film historian talking about the importance of Lawton. And it's so over the top that it, it, He's like a Simpsons character, like, like he's the film historian equivalent of the comic book guy, from Simon the
0: Callow, who even yeah. sounds like it's a
1: made-up name. <laughs> like I was cracking up laughing, we'll see him. Uh,
0: there's also the uh, the radio version, Lux from Lux Radio uh, Theater for about an hour uh, from 1948, also starring Ray Milland, uh, and there's an image gallery. So. so like, if, if film noir is your, your thing, this is well worth putting on, yeah, on your, your docket. Uh, moving up, but still from a while ago, 1986 was Black Moon Rising, now being re-released by Kino. This is one of these movies I somehow just missed along the way, and I remember seeing the trailers for it in theaters, because, you know, I'm old, and uh being like, <laughs> oh, man, it's got Linda Hamilton in it, it's got Tommy Lee Jones in it, it's got a fucking badass, mega-crazy sci-fi car in it. Like, I, like, I want to see this fucking movie, and I just never got around to it. And now, in retrospect, finding out that, in fact, this was... Written by John Carpenter, who wrote it around the same time he was making Escape from New York, so it was very early it in makes his career.
1: Perfect sense finding that out.
0: And you find out, like, this is not, they did not stick with his exact script. There's a, they made a lot of rewrites along the way. So ultimately, I think he largely gets credited with kind of story by, and the, you know. This is by. also
1: one of those movies that ends up being accidentally uh, very, very relevant today. Okay. Well, <laughs> why don't you tell the story here? Well, so that. Uh, Tommy Lee Jones is basically a freelance thief who is hired by the FBI because they are investigating... Blackmailed by the blackmailed FBI. Blackmailed by the FBI. Well, eh, he's hired first and then blackmailed. Right. Like, it's
0: kind of like but, he's hired, but un- but he has no
1: choice. So, so we're not told who this individual is, but there is somebody whose tax returns they can't get a hold of through legal means, and so they have decided to fuck it. We're going to steal them. And so Tommy Lee Jones steals them, gets kind of caught... And in trying to hide the evidence, slips the data reel into the back of this concept running on water, I want to say? Yeah. Supercar.
0: Yeah. and That looks like, like the DeLorean from Back to the Future with a different paint job and maybe a new fender.
1: And, and the movie ends up being kind of a... Well, far less futuristic than I expected it to be, quite frankly. Right, But this rolling... Semi-action heist film where he's trying to get back to the car, and Linda Hamilton uh, she steals this car a bunch with a bunch of other. Yeah, cars she's a professional for, car thief for her rich uh, corporate exec boss slash maybe lover, mm-hmm. and it's these forces playing at each other while at the same time the guys who had the tax returns are coming after Tommy Lee Jones. It, I ended up having a lot more fun with this movie than I expected to, uh, most notably Linda Hamilton's wig in about half the movie, oh, which yeah. is special, to yeah. say the least. Yeah. It's a little <laughs> extreme. It's a little 80s. But, yeah, like, it, it's a fun, low-key, kind of Carpenter-esque heist film. It, I mean, it, at points, it, it was uh, enjoyable. It was, I
0: will say it's funny. Like, people talk a lot about one of the big scenes in Mission Impossible 4 where Tom Cruise drives a car. Out of a tower, a skyscraper, and into the glass of the the side tower next to it—that what originally happened in this movie. Yeah. Although to be clear, it looked real in Mission Impossible. <laughs> 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 Here, not so much. No, no, yeah. It's- and the
1: back guy is played by I'm, I'm uh, on Robert this. Vaughn. Thank you. Yeah, who is such a great bad guy.
0: Oh, yeah. Also played a lot of good guys, too. He was the lead good guy, Napoleon Solo in The Man from Uncle.
1: See, he's always um, the assassin from Battle Beyond the Stars to me. <laughs> that, that, that is... That and, sadly, basketball are the two things that I think of Robert Vaughn.
0: One of the main heavies is played by Lee Vang, who a lot of people know as Mr. Body and Clue. He acted in a lot of movies, I, uh, sometimes very small roles, sometimes slightly bigger. This is actually one of his bigger roles, but I know him as the lead singer of the Band Fear. Uh, but also Bubba Smith, the ex-football player turned actor, is a huge motherfucker. He's in a lot of stuff back and, around
1: then. He plays the head FBI agent here. And there's also the, uh, he's a character actor who's in Deadwood as this super sniveling guy plays a uh, uh, William mechanic. William Sanderson? Yes. yeah. Who I've discovered watching this movie that thanks to Deadwood I cannot see him as anything but a cowardly, sniveling little weasel of a man. Well, I'll
0: think about it as well in Blade Runner, he was the guy who kind of made the the Tinker Toys like he was he's the guy who designed Oh, Blade Runner like yes. he designed all the little <laughs> sort of like using the, the the technology for replicants but he was making sort of like autom- yeah, automatons he was
1: doing I thought you were talking about Blade at first and was no. very confused Sorry, no no <laughs> you're like what what Chris
0: Christopherson <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, and this is fun. It is a little slow moving at it points, is. for sure. And there's some very, there's a complete and total lack of chemistry between Tommy Lee Jones and and Linda Hamilton. Oh,
1: and, and, and it's there, also there's a sex scene that is a shot for shot redo of the Terminator one sex scene,
0: <laughs> and and yet nowhere near as nope. effective. There, nowhere in near. fact, it's just you kind of grimacing just watching well, this, her try to force herself to feel sexy around Tommy Lee Jones, who is. is famously even then kind of a... The actor who lets
1: other actors know on the first day he doesn't like them. It also makes no sense in the context of the story. It very much is a well, we're going to have sex with each other because we're the two leads. Right. not in- It's just way. instant. There's no romance in the movie. They're just, no. yeah, why don't we just bone, I guess.
0: But there is some cool stuff in here. It's very 1986. Uh, it, There's certainly fun to be had with it. At the time, it was not very well thought of. Uh, in retrospect, a lot of people have come back and said, okay, there actually is like more than enough stuff here to make this a worthy film to look back on, and I don't entirely disagree. You- there, uh, Kino actually loaded this up with bonus features, including a vintage Trailer. There's a interview with Harley Coakley, who is the director here, who talks about his whole career. Basically, uh, there's an interview with the producer Douglas Curtis. There's an interview with Lalo Schifrin, the famous composer who who wrote the music for this. Uh, there is Carpenter's Craft, a new video essay by author Troy Howarth, who focuses on Carpenter's whole career and how incredibly diverse his body of work was. There is Black Making Black Moon Rising, which is a 12-minute archival featurette, which is to say very much an EPK. Uh, alternate Footage, which selected scenes from the Hong Kong version of this, which had a different score and different FX that were used in it. Huh. Uh, Uh, There's a radio spot, uh, reversible uh, vintage cover poster art, uh, a collection of trailers for other keynote releases, and there's a brand new audio commentary with Lee Gambin, author of Hell Hath No Fury Like Her, The Making of Christine, who talks about the production of Black Moon Rising. I I have to call
1: out that you mentioned the trailers for other movies. They're all B-grade Tommy Lee Jones action movies, Mm -hmm. which... I'm kind of really excited that Kino Lorber is getting into that, because at least two of them are kind of childhood favorites of mine. So I'm looking forward to checking those out. So surprisingly, I yet have
0: yet another uh, high-end copy of Crank, they, one of the early release, re-releases here with 4K, which is always like, cause I remember it came out like in a really pristine Blu-ray at one point, like they were really pumping it with like, yeah, this is as good as Blu-ray gets, we're pumping this out, like Crank is gonna be badass. Oh, and, 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 and it, it was, it looked great, but even so, I'm like, how is Crank becoming the like poster child for like, what, what you want to test your audio yeah, you, and visual I, system I don't get with. it
1: because Crank is – it was shot on super cheap digital cameras. It's, it's a lot like 28 Days Later where, quite frankly, there's only so good Crank will ever look. Uh, you know, you, you just can't make it look good behind a certain point and cause some, that's what they got.
0: And some would argue that the actual Blu-ray is – a better transfer than the 4K version. At least some of the reviews were saying it's more balanced at the very least. There's certainly stuff in this 4K version where there's more detail and stuff, but they just didn't get the color balance quite right. So if you already own the Blu-ray... You maybe consider sticking to the Blu-ray, um, but if you don't have it at all, this does come with that Blu-ray inside yeah. of it as well. But if you've never seen it, this is directed by Mark Nebeldean and Brian Taylor, who when they first hit the scene, people were like, <laughs> you're the new Sam Raimi, I want to watch everything that you do, you're fucking amazing, and then they made Crank 2, which is even better. Yeah, yeah,
1: they made... Two good movies, yeah, and then they and made they, a slew of not so good movies. Well, they, they, I, I looked it up because after watching Crank, I remember like I love Crank, yeah, you know, for all that is a terribly sexist, chauvinistic, just uh, just horrible, wonderful movie. And then I love Crank too, and they made Gamer, and they made a the sequel to the Ghost Rider, you know, Ghost Rider, yeah. and then. For all that I can tell, never worked again. Well, they didn't work together
0: for on I, stuff. They've both been working separately. Have they? Things. Like yeah. I, I
1: was trying to track them down and could not find other. No, ones no, no, they, they
0: both they both have worked on other films, directed other films. But um this was their first film, and it is. As much as you're saying all those things, but like, yeah, it's really offensive. It's like, it's kind of a satire of action films and all that testosterone. I don't think there's any way you can take this film seriously at all. You're not supposed to be looking this as something that could happen on any level, even on a level of like, like the only film I can think to compare it to is Commando. Where it's so ridiculously over the top, there's just no way that you could watch this and go, I'm supposed to be taking this as a straightforward action movie and not in and of itself a satire of of action, which even speaking of Commando, because people have made that argument one way or the other, Schwarzenegger himself said recently, I don't understand what's wrong with you guys. Did you not see the moment I was carrying around an 18-foot, 4-foot thick log that this was a parody? Like, right in the beginning? It's clearly a satire of action movies, and so is Crank.
1: Oh, yeah. And is an absolute
0: And because satire. not everybody got it, they had to double it down with Crank 2 and make it like, okay, if you don't know this is a satire, then I, I got nothing for I, you. If,
1: <laughs> if I didn't know better, I would be convinced that... Crank and Crank 2 were written by Matt Stone and Trey Parker. Right. Because it's. When I talk about the fact that it's sexist and chauvinist, that's kind of what I mean, where there is not a single character in this movie who is not an offensive stereotype Mm -hmm. of that character. Every black guy is a gangbanger. Every Hispanic person talks with a horribly offensive accent. Every woman is a sex object who whips her boobs out. Uh, Chelios. Is, is it Crank but, One or Crank Two? I don't remember where they they literally shoot the breast implants out of a stripper. I can't remember. But I Jason remember Jason remember Statham where.
0: is like an unkillable force of nature. Who like literally nothing can stop this guy because he's just that masculine. Yeah. Uh, but like it's such a like like it's so funny you watch you're like okay you can't take that seriously clearly it's making fun of this stuff not engaging in it as much and And like he's like a hitman in LA and he uh Ends up in a situation after a hit doesn't go as well as people thought it was going to, where they inject him with this drug, which inhibits adrenaline, slowing his heart down, and it's going to kill him. And the only way he can stay alive is if he just nonstop keeps his adrenaline at ultra high levels, and that involves doing anything that takes. At the moment, whether it's, like, smoking, like, crystal meth, or having sex, like, yeah, a public, crazy in sex in public. Us, yeah. Or... or he,
1: he beats up a random gang of guys. Yeah. Who, he just... He's actually friends with. Right. He just needs to get into a fight at that point. Yeah. He needs the adrenaline he, to come... He against. shocks himself. Anytime
0: anything slows down, the, he's, you can see he's starting to feel it. Uh-oh. Oh, I can feel it. So, he's got to do something incredibly brutal. And that's hysterical premise. Yeah. And Crank 2 takes it even further to the next level, where... would you remember what the premise was in that one.
1: Uh, in that one, the he gets rescued. Also, at, it, he gets rescued from the end of this movie, where he pretty clearly dies, and he gets a fake heart installed that is running out of power, and so he has to consistently electrocute himself to charge right. uh, the heart. <laughs> it's, it's so it's, ridiculous. Like, it's, it's the movie it's, is just over. the I, top. You've it's,
0: never seen a superhero movie as hard to believe this could happen as the Crank. Well, and, and
1: what's cool though is that gloriously. Like? So, like I was mentioning earlier, they shot this thing on really cheap handheld cameras, and Neville, Dean, and Taylor, they literally were the cameraman for this movie, and they would strap rollerblades on and would just skate along behind them, and they kind of did improv action. Oh, yeah. And it- so there's a lot of stuff that, even today... I've never seen another film do from an action standpoint because they could afford to throw the camera against the wall or lose it in a wreck. Right. They're just, like, skating along behind – there's a scene where they are skating along behind uh, the main character who is – butt-ass naked, in a hospital gown, doing a handstand on a motorcycle with his ass hanging out. And it is just the most beautiful thing I've seen in and forever.
0: And they, they like, would take cheap, cheap cameras to, like... Back then, there weren't drones. They would have, like, you know, remote-control helicopters, toy helicopters, and attach those to those and crash them into shit. Right. I mean, it was very Sam Raimi, see to your pants, let's just invent this if there's well, and, no way and, to do and it. And every
1: actor is in on the joke. Dwight Yoakam is... <laughs> his doctor, who is, I think, has his mouth on boobs of a stripper and every yeah. scene he's in, yeah. he is just constantly getting all kinds of crazy shit going on and drunk up his mind or high at the airport while trying to tell him, just ex- exposition dumping onto him. All of this stuff is just like, yeah, okay, sure, whatever.
0: <laughs> uh, to make a long story short, if you've never seen Crank and you even mildly enjoy action films... This is, like, essential watching, and so is the
1: sequel. Brad However, I, I will add the caveat of, if, you, if you're if you the kind of person who can't necessarily divorce yourself from the subject matter, or you live with someone who does, maybe don't show it to them. True. Because there is a lot of stuff that, if you aren't able to go, yeah, this is a joke, is super
0: offensive. Sure. Uh, now, this advertises itself as having brand new extras, but... They're lying. There are not. All the extras are from the previous Blu-ray things, which is Shooting Crank, which is uh, seven minutes. I'm talking about shooting the film digitally in HD and all those crazy things that they did. There's uh, 17 and a half minutes of the stunts, uh, there's six and a half minutes uh, about the marketing techniques they did with the posters, viral internet stuff, you things on YouTube. There's Crank at Comic-Con for 11 and a half minutes with a Q&A with Jason Statham. Uh, and then there's 25 and a half minutes of more stories from Crank, which is lots of random stories from the directors and cast talking about weird shit that happened when they were making this Basically movie. Basically
1: a bunch of EPK stuff.
0: Well, I mean, I think of EPK specifically being something that's made to be sh- seen before the movie even comes
1: out in mm-hmm. short bites. I wouldn't call this EPK. Sorry, stuff. let me so. rephrase that. It's—I I tried to watch a couple of the special features, and they were—they were so masturbatory over the way they did things that I, I gave up halfway through. Fair enough. Like two of them.
0: I mean, despite the fact this is kind of making fun of bro culture, it also is bro culture at the same time. Yeah. So it's confusing. Let's move on to uh, Hong Kong's Big Brother, starring Donnie Yen, arguably one of the greatest filmic martial artists working today. Uh, He's the star of the Ip Man films, which are tremendous and incredible. Are Some might say the best uh, martial arts films
1: Coming out of Asia in the last ten years, outside of the Raid movies, is it wrong that because of watching Big Brother, I ended up tracking down Itman Man on Netflix finally, and I kind of just want to talk about It Man. Well, but you <laughs> <It> cannot.
0: <laughs> we can say we deeply recommend It Man but, one and two. Three is uh, not quite as good, and there's a there's a final one on the yeah, way with Donnie. But a uh, uh, Big Brother, Big Brother, which is not what you're really expecting from a Donnie Yen yeah. film, but. That being said, I don't want to throw it under the bus completely no. because it's kind of an adorable little like version of that teacher gets brought in from the outside to teach the unruly class and they end up respecting him because he's
1: tough but fair so I- I'm gonna say this I actually enjoyed Big Brother. Um, It may be the schmaltziest movie I have ever seen in my entire life.
0: (laughs) It's pretty schmaltzy.
1: But like you hit the nail on the head. It's Dangerous Minds with Michelle Pfeiffer, but instead of her going through and dealing with some of the more tough stuff by inspiring her students, uh, Donnie Yen comes through some of the problems away. Right. You've seen this movie before. He comes in. He's never been a teacher before. Uh, He has a great recommendation, which we don't really get the context of until later. And so he's allowed to teach the troubled class. And through him believing in them and inspiring them, gets them to better all of their lives. Uh, It's also a massive indictment of the Hong Kong schooling system going on right now. And I made it about halfway through this movie before I realized... What this was, and so like, we all have our loves, be it horror or action. And there's always those movies that exist that are kind of the the genre films we can show our family who don't like those genre films. This is the kung fu movie you can watch around your grandparents, yeah. Because it, it, specifically, your kind of racist conservative grandparents, because like it's very much against the federally mandated schooling system. Everyone ends up better off because of the ex-marine military uh, teacher who comes in and helps. And the kung fu is decent when they sparse. When they do it,
0: it's good. Yeah, it's Donnie Yen doing that sort of stunt-oriented kung fu. Uh there's honestly there's all but none until the third act. And there's like three sequences in the whole movie? Yeah, uh that that are largely not that long. But they are impressive when they happen. Um I mean we've we've seen Donnie Young films before you've seen It Man There if you want nonstop martial arts, there you go. This is a like said a kind of cute but not terribly complex version of Dangerous Minds that is has enough fun and enough original bits in it to keep you interested and involved. I mean, it's following that formula, but partially because it's from a different culture, they're doing different stuff with yeah. it. And that kind of was a, a, amusing. I mean, this is definitely aimed at kids,
1: you know, or family fare. It, it, yeah. I, I, it's that family friendly kung fu movie,
0: right? But so, like, if you consider, oh, I got, I love Donnie Yen. I got to see it. This is not going to be on the essential Donnie Yen list. This is like going to see like, Jackie Chan doing around the world in eighty days. You yeah, know, but, like don't he's know,
1: not gonna be doing a lot of martial arts. If you're gonna go visit some family and you wanna have a movie that you can watch that isn't gonna piss them off because this guy's getting just destroyed with kung fu left and right, this is a good movie to put
0: on. Also, not a terrible film if you have some younger kids that you would like to see get into martial arts stuff. Yeah. And a good starter for sort of younger children with yeah. watching some martial badass martial
1: arts fight and go, can the Power Rangers do this shit? Although, again, <laughs> like I don't think we can emphasize enough how cheesy and schmaltzy this is. Uh, the soundtrack, there's slow-mo reaction shots. Everybody has a heartfelt conclusion to their story. Just... <laughs> Oh, my God. It's the schmaltziest movie ever. It is pretty schmaltzy. Um, Now, I did give you Triple Threat, didn't I?
0: You did. I I don't think you brought it back. Uh, Okay. Just point. It it may have fallen off the back of the thing. I haven't even checked. But don't worry. I'm not that. I'm going to put the handcuffs on you until your wife brings it here. (laughs) Just kidding if you want a real hong kong like action movie that one with like the actual brutalness then triple threat is the movie that you are actually looking for not yes. big brother and this is kind of the superstar far east action movie that takes three of the biggest stars in the world for martial arts tony ja of Ico course Uwe. uh eco away and tiger chen uh, but it, if that's not enough and believe me it would be like those guys are three of the 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 heavyweights in martial arts right now for badass amazing stunt and and martial arts work of all very different style of fighting. You've also got maybe the best white guy at film martial arts alive today, Scott Atkins who's incredible, who's also in the Undisputed movies, yeah. which are quite good. And then Michael J. White, Jai White, who unfortunately, his career took a nosedive after being in Spawn, but he's, he's slowly pulling his way out of that now. Wasn't he also in the Undisputed movies? Uh, he <laughs> might've been. Um, I wouldn't have been surprised, Surprised. but um, there's a uh, Selena Jade is in this, who people uh, might know from playing uh, Shado in uh, Arrow, who's quite good at martial arts in there. And then, G.J. Yanin, who should have gotten more better billing here, who was the lead role in that movie, Chocolate, which is yeah. a masterpiece of martial arts film where she was like 14 and showing up almost every martial arts artist in the business. So this is... Got a great lineup of people. The question is, can they actually make the movie to sell it? And the story starts with uh, two of these guys, Tiger Chen and Tony ja, uh, uh, or No, is it Tiger and Nico?
1: No, no, it's Tiger and Tony Jaa. Tiger
0: and Tony, and they are mercenaries in Thailand. They think they're part of a group to free some prisoners. They get there, and they find out that uh, the bad guys, Scott Atkins, who they're there to rescue, arguably, and then Michael J. White in charge of the team are planning on just killing absolutely everyone there, including
1: their own hired mercenaries. Right. And then the, the people who are imprisoning Scott Atkins is Iko Away's group. Right. Yeah.
0: Right. He's one of the guys, yeah, who was – because, as we find out later, Scott Atkins is a real terrorist piece of shit. Yes. Uh, but Iko Away, his girlfriend or wife or something, right. dies, and – So he's out to find these guys, and he comes across these two guys fighting in sort of like one of those pay-for-fighting ring things, and he's like, oh, okay, well, I'm going to kill both these guys. And then they, of course, all realize that it's all—they got fucked, too, and they're like, let's all team up together and take out these dudes. And in the process— carnage ensues and there's also like the girl who they that they have to do the escort mission for the whole way
1: (laughs) you know to to keep her alive who shows up every like 20 minutes for one or two scenes right yeah. But there's a whole Terminator sequence that's great, where like they're at a police
0: station. And these dudes are like, oh, "Do you think that's going to stop us?" And they just come in so and fucking murder everyone in the
1: police station. <laughs> this is what I kind of ended up wishing the Expendables were. Oh, totally. Like, like, it, it's a callback to the low to mid, low to mid budget action films that existed in the '80s and '90s that we just don't see anymore because action films tend to either be super low budget or they tend to be big blockbuster, mega-budget movies. So it, it was nice to watch this kind of a uh, just kind of mid-budget movie. Uh, and Tony Jaa and Iku Wei and Tiger Chen do a pretty decent job of acting Tony Jaa. Actually, I'm really happy to see him in this movie, because I remember he made Umbach and then kind of went weird or he he, he had a he's thing all, happen he, and then he kind of like quit for a bit. Yeah, he... And then he showed... I'm, yeah. I'm happy to see him show He went through some weird ego stuff for a while there. And he he's sort of the emotional uh, core of this movie. He's... If any of them are the main character, it's him. And he does a really good job holding this movie together. Like, he was charismatic, really likable guy. I was happy to see that. Uh, the only thing that kind of bugged me is, for the most part, the action is really well shot. And they do a good job of pulling the camera back and letting these guys actually just fight because everyone we've mentioned so far can fight and they are good at fighting together. There was a bit towards the end of the third act where there are like two or three fights that they just do not shoot well. And it, it was really disappointing for a bit. I was afraid that the whole third act was going to be a mess. But they, they ended up pulling it together and the final fight is amazing and the, the uh, Terminator-esque sequence with the police station, it, it is worth watching the movie for that sequence. Oh, yeah. Film. It there's is a, amazing.
0: There's a character gets taken out by a grenade launcher from Holy like five shit. feet away. <laughs> it's they like, just,
1: oh my God. They just disappear, yeah.
0: basically. Um, and this is not going to have the same level as brutality as the Raid movies or The Night Comes Us. It's definitely more focused on the kind of stunt work you expect from Tony Ja, from more like... Um, uh, the the tiger chen style of group fighting uh, you know it's not Iko Uwe's normal type of film that he's in, but he's certainly ca- just as capable of the martial arts type stuff. And there's a lot of gunplay in it as well, but it's not, like I said, generally speaking, with a few exceptions, it's not one of those super brutally graphically you know, violent ones.
1: Interesting, Iku Uwe, out of everyone in this movie, I think ended up coming off the worst. Hmm. Uh, not, not in his fighting, but because his character kind of does this flip-flopping on whose side he's on. Yeah. And it... it Takes a lot of his agency and importance out when watching the movie, so uh, I just never really vibe with him in the movie. Even though out of everyone in it, he's the one who I enjoy watching be a badass martial artist. Right, than the rest,
0: I, I, you know, I didn't have that same problem with it. I actually enjoyed it. His part more because he was having this sort of unpredictability to him. Huh. The other two guys were kind of just more a little un, almost. Disappointingly on the straight and narrow, they were oh. kind of like, looked like they were trying to use them for comedic purposes to play off each other, like a, like a bumbling comedy team almost in a way. And Eco felt like more, much more of the leading man to me in some ways because That's he's right. the one who's totally serious the whole time. And these guys are kind of like, you know, running into walls. I, I, but, I think I may have just been too distracted by Tony Jaw batting those guys at me. Wow, didn't know you had that big of a Tony Jao thing. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. Uh, there's a 10-minute se- segment of edited interviews with everyone from the main cast, uh, and there's some trailers factor in interview but that's afterwards, but that's about it. But still, martial arts fans, this is well worth your time. Now, going way back with Asian cinema uh, to 1969, we get Teruo Ishii's Yakuza Law. Now, if you're not familiar yeah. with Ishii's works, he is an Oddball, dude. No question about it. Like, he did, uh, oh my goodness, what is the name of that? Hideous, bad, uh, I don't know, yeah, just I to no see. Um, yes, 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 give me just one second here. Hideous something with something men. It was so fucked up. <laughs> oh, yeah, no. Horrors of Malformed Men.
1: Oh, That's I watched a that with you.
0: <laughs> fucking weird, but awesome movie. That's one of those movies, like, people are like, we want something super weird. Yeah. I'd be like, that would be on my list of ones, like, have you seen, like, I'd say, have you seen House? And if they say, yes. i would be like, have you seen horrors of malformed men? Huh. That would I'd put on that list. And I actually,
1: really enjoyed that one. Yeah, I, uh...
0: and Yakuza Law is not as good. No, but it also has the same level of Gonzo going way over the top, silly-looking special effects. <laughs> And I think what hurts us more than anything is they want it to be – it's like an anthology of three films, short films, in three time periods that each are focusing on the law of the Yakuza, which is basically if you break their law, then you have to do penance in some horrific way. And, like, the opening credits is just a series of scenes, people it's being tortured and murdered torture. in incredibly graphic ways that do not actually happen in the film. <laughs> Weirdly, you're like, well, what?
1: And I, I didn't realize this was an anthology film at first, so when I'm I was watching a a lot of the torture sequences are men dressed, you know, as 70s Yakuza guys. And the first sequence takes place, like, in the Edo period in the 1600s. And it really threw me for a loop. I spent the entire first sequence just going, like, why? Why were we watching in the modern period? And And it's not until we get into the second and third stories that you start they jump for it in time. I think the second one takes place it's like, um, just post-World War II. It's a
0: Meiji period. Yeah, right, and- right, on there, right around there, which is the, the very classic Icusa story with one of the guys who's just been released from prison, uh, and he's dealing with like all the things that come out. Like, oh, they should be like, oh, thanks for going to prison for us, but it's just not as much as that as you'd think. So
1: I really didn't like this. Uh, I was into the first story, because uh, it was interesting. Yes, it's horribly grotesquely violent, a little rapey, but still I was, I was enthralled by it because, yeah, yeah, I like weird violent Asian cinema. <laughs> and it, it was the second story that I started to fall out of it because I realized that the second story was the exact same basic story structure, just with different details. Down to like, okay, yes, we are going to watch these characters. Part we're of the going problem. Meet them.
0: Part of the problem is you weren't. Gonna, it wasn't made clear that the story had changed. Yeah. It Just it's you just were like, new. what it happened to, to those
1: other characters? But they they break a rule and then they die horribly. And I, I can tell you the exact moment without spoiling anything that the movie lost me. It's at the beginning of the third storyline. There is a bit where there is a car chase Mm -hmm. and there's a guy who is an amazing shot. Like that's his entire character is (laughs) that he can shoot anything anywhere. Um, In order to stop the car chase, he shoots an oil container like that you see uh, in an industrial refinery. That's like holds 80,000 gallons of oil with a rifle and it explodes. Sure. As it does and i was just like no i'm i'm done movie you've lost
0: me completely at that I point i mean it's all very silly stuff some of it's nicely shot but the every time there's an effects scene and there's a lot of them they look really not great and, and it's um, it's
1: outrageously violent oh, yeah. so if you're into that hyper violent asian cinema where just the gorier the better. You're gonna get some fun out of this. If we'll see, you like, like that. I
0: did not like the first one. I thought it was very dull. The second one I actually thoroughly enjoyed. I was like, oh, this is my kind of thing with this sort of like disgraced yakuza that, but like, who comes expecting that he's going to get taken care of for going to jail, but no. And there's like the guy who's playing it is such a badass. You're like, okay, I like this okay. guy, and he's kind of noble in his way, like the noble criminal, and I like that. The third one is like gets to the point of like almost James Bond-level silliness, where it's well, like, this it's, is just absurd, and I'm not sure what – every everybody's after a briefcase filled with gold, and it's like people are carrying it like it's got aluminum foil in it. <laughs> you're like, that thing is going to weigh a couple
1: hundred pounds,
0: I'm just saying.
1: <laughs> I just – I couldn't get into the second and third stories after that first, because two minutes in, I went, oh, this is exactly what's going to happen, every story beat. And I was right. Both times.
0: So there's audio commentary by film critic Jasper Sharp. There's erotic, grotesque, and genre hopping for 47 minutes, which is a rare archival interview with director Taro Ishii, which has been newly edited for this release, which is basically him talking about his whole career, which I did not get a chance to watch, but I plan on going back to watch because he really is kind of a fascinating and a definitely... A director in Japanese film that was very prolific, but is not at all like his contemporaries at all. He is like the Roger
1: Corman of Japan at this point. I'd period. honestly be interested in checking out some of his other movies, because as much as I didn't like this... like I, I think if this movie had not been an anthology movie, I probably would have ended up enjoying it. If it was any of these stories, but fleshed out, made more interesting... Like, I'd like to check out his other works. I bet he does really interesting stuff.
0: Yeah. He's been quite a few of his other films are given a lot of credit by sort of cult movie gorehounds. Yeah. So So uh, moving to a very different type of film is the Blu-ray and 4K release of Captain Marvel, Ooh. a movie that I really enjoyed in the theater, but felt slightly let down by. And that's partially because I, I realized it was important for this movie to be good. And I thought it was good, but I wanted it to be one of the best. You know, I wanted it yeah. to be one of the ones that was like, this is going to be one of those films no one can argue is one of the best Marvel films, and no one would I – I wouldn't believe anybody if they were say, arguing that it was, because it's not. It's not. But that being said, it is firmly a very good Marvel film, so, as most Marvel films are. And re-watching it, I found without that pressure, I enjoyed it so much more.
1: Yeah, I, I'm really glad I got to rewatch this because so, Captain Marvel is my favorite comic book character right huh? now, like, like specifically in the comics. Mm-hmm. You know, she's not my favorite MCU character, but she's my favorite one to read, her and Miss Marvel. I love them both. And so I, this is one of those movies that when I went into it, I, I knew I couldn't be fair. Like I came in preloaded to love and I loved it in theaters and, and I had issues. I remember having issues with the second act because it, it, it has a lot of work that it has to do kind of setting up her backstory and it drags a bit, especially since, quite frankly, if if you paid attention to any, uh, any space-based Marvel property in the MCU, be it Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., Guardians of the Galaxy, anything. You know who the bad guys really are in this movie 10 minutes into the movie. And so I I found myself getting impatient getting to their reveal. See, and I, so going I, back and watching it this time though, didn't have that.
0: See, I didn't I don't necessarily agree with that because although I think we all realize that there's no way the Kree are uncertainly these champions of the galaxy galaxy because they never have been in the history of Marvel Comics. There's clearly something else going on. I did not expect what they were going to do with the scrolls
1: at all. I did not either. That's actually what I was about to get to because that blew me away. Uh, I have always had a very different interpretation of the scrolls and what they ended up doing with it. Uh, it really worked for me. And... Ben Mendelsohn plays the kind of lead scroll and ends up being one of the more complex characters that I really wasn't expecting from that at all.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, And plus, it was like so gimme casting to cast Ben Mendelsohn as like a mustache twirling bad guy. Yeah. Then when he turns out not really being that, I was just blindsided. I was like, he was just such a gimme. That's all he plays is parts like that. And I was like... That is not at all what I thought this movie was going to go. But, I mean, that being said, I like that aspect of it a lot. But what I love is the interplay between uh, Brie Larson and Samuel L. Jackson, which they just have such fantastic chemistry together. The only thing that makes me sad is I wish there had been more Agent Coulson in this. So
1: even beyond them, it's actually kind of everyone's interactions. So so this movie is – it's quite a bit less quippy. Uh, They they downplay the quips quite a bit more, but instead what they do is – Everyone has this very naturalistic way of conversing with each other. Even Ben Mendelsohn as a as a scree 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 scroll scroll. God bless. <laughs> I got there. I got there eventually as you, a scroll. You found. Um, you wa- You <laughs> wound your way back to scroll. It's good. But like, it, it's very conversational and very comfortable with each other, and it ends up giving this this. It feels like they're all buddies. Like. Mm-hmm. Even the ones who they just meet, uh, Colson kind of has a. Samuel L. Jackson is great with it, Ben Mendelsohn is good, and even Jude Law has a bit of that very naturalistic conversation, and I really dug that this time through.
0: I mean, the theme of this film is discovering who your family is, for sure, and that they're not always who you're related to. Um, and I think on the whole, that works. I mean, every movie kind of has, Marvel movie has its own Kind of subgenre to it, and yeah. this one it is sort of like a family drama well, it- is the subgenre. But that being said, there's lots of really cool action stuff in here. I mean, when she goes, like when you realize that the Mar- Captain Marvel we've been seeing is at like. 120th of her power yeah, yeah,
1: level. See her, like, and she goes, fulls.
0: Yes. <laughs> I was just, the giz- even watching again, my hair's raising up at the back of my neck, and she's like flying through spaceships, like full just spread, going, wee. <laughs> I was well, like,
1: yep. You- <laughs> I, I don't want to spend too much time talking about it, but you can't ignore the fact that Captain Marvel ended up, whether it, it was intending to or not, being a a kind of feminist manifesto movie solely for the fact that the non-feminists really despised everything about it because Brie Larson is relatively progressive. And the way they handle the the female experience in this movie, uh, I, granted I'm a white guy who is saying this, really worked for me. I, I even, I showed this to my wife and was like, okay, just how'd this feel to you? And I was glad to hear that it really worked for her too, that there's a sequence where, uh, when captain Marvel does kind of go full super sand and they, they, they do this series of flashbacks and showing how that is iconic to her as a character that, I remember in theaters, I applauded and I teared up watching this because I just I I couldn't help but imagine showing this to my daughter. Well, we had seen a we had
0: seen a series of flashbacks throughout the movie of her when she was just thought she was just human, of like trying something dangerous and failing and falling, and then at the end you see the sequence of like the after of all those things where she dusted herself up. And got back right, got yeah. right back up again. Well, you know, no tears. Let's just, let's just, give that another just, shot because that's who this person just, is. Fuck, and I was like, damn, now I, I, <laughs> <laughs> I got a little in my body from that too. Uh, I think this is great. I really enjoyed watching it a second time. It's got a cat character. Finally, Marvel, what took so long? Uh, the cat character, which Goose. I hope returns over and over and over. Okay, I want Goose in every Marvel film from here on out. Who is awesome? Uh, what do you call him, uh, uh, a Fleurlin or uh, Fleurkin? Uh, uh, Flarkin. It sounds like which a, was sounds like a
1: like a weird sex thing. It was cool because they the way they did it in the movie is exactly the way they do it in the comics. Where the moment anyone is who is not a human sees it, they're like, "What the fuck? You have a flurkin, Get that away from me!" Why right would now. you even have that? <laughs> and all the humans are like, "It's a cat." They're like, "I don't know what a cat is, man," but. Get that away from me. That thing is awful. (laughs) (laughs) And
0: it is capable of being truly awful. But for whatever reason, it really likes humans. I'm not going to
1: lie. Captain Marvel is my pick of the week.
0: Yeah, it it is is mine too. I think, and not just because the movie's good, but there's a lot of really well worth watching bonus features. There's a two minute intro, which is Kind of more, it's less, usually with these intros, it's the directors just talking at the camera, and that's not what this is. It's uh, co-writer directors, Anne Bowden and Ryan Fleck, talking over a sort of lightning flash of behind-the-scenes compilation stuff. Uh, there's uh, almost seven minutes on Brie Larson talking about becoming a superhero, which is uh, everyone then talking about working with her and stuff. Uh, there's b- Big Hero Moment, three and a half minutes, closer look at her depth, personality, and history. There's the origin of uh, Nick Fury. Which is kinda cool. So you like to just see like the, the, the arc that he's gone through. Uh, there's the dream team uh, a little under three minutes, which is basically just people praising the directors. There's three and a half minutes, the scrolls and the Kree. It's clear what that is. Uh, there's hysterical cat. Etude, which is uh, like filmed like a like a very retro type thing, like in four three and everything, which is a, like a feature featurette about Goose. Uh, there's almost nine minutes of deleted scenes that are actually worth watching. Um, I did find every single one. I was like, totally understand why you cut this out. It's not because it's a bad scene. It's because it gives away too much, sure. too early, or it plays it plays an aspect of the character up that works better if you do it later than if you hint at it earlier. Uh, there's a gag reel for two minutes, which is you know these. Marvel gag reels are never very good, but if you want to see them snickering and breaking lines for two minutes, there you go. And there's audio commentary by the directors uh, as well, who also talk about, about at length about the Stan Lee opening studio loop, where they replace Stan Lee's face uh, with all the characters' face in the original Marvel I, I'm not logo.
1: Lie, I cried a bit in theaters when I saw that. Oh
0: yeah, but yeah, this is a, 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 another really great Marvel film. I will definitely watch this multiple more times. You know, I kind of love it.
1: The only thing that I'm kind of interested with now is that. So this is like it's a period film. It's this is what they went with. I, I'm wondering if the inevitable Captain Marvel 2, if they are going to jump ahead and do post game or if they are going to show her trying to bring peace to the Kree and the rest of the universe and set up, like, Guardians of the Galaxy. Because, like, in my head, in my headcanon, she's the one who brokered that peace that started Guardians of the Galaxy. It could and, be. And I'd, I'd be intrigued either way. I
0: know that Faggy is really into the cosmic stuff, but he's also said, I'm keeping most of it to myself because a lot of it's long game stuff that we're coming to. So I have a feeling a lot of this stuff has been planned. The cosmic stuff he's been planning for a super well, long time. Well,
1: what I'm, I really hope they go in and have her and Rhodey kind of get into a relationship as the series mm-hmm. goes on too. Or whoever. Well, just because that—that's—that's who she's kind of with in the was, comics. Yeah, but d- I forget.
0: Somebody, Although <laughs> there were hints she was going to be with another character, and I uh, and I can't remember who it was. Not in the comics, but so in the movies. Want
1: to know what my wife's biggest disappointment was watching this movie? What was that? Is we got to the point where she meets her friend, and she turns to me and goes, "So, like, she's a lesbian, right? Like, they're they're clearly a couple." I was like, ah, "I, I, I mean, they might, but I know it's not that in the comics." And she was like, "Oh." That would have been so much cooler if she was.
0: Well, <laughs> well you know, like, I mean, yeah, I, but, I also, would.
1: but I also really love
0: it when they can portray a very strong woman who is not a lesbian, well, they, too. And who's have, like, no, I can be very feminine while being that strong. Motherly, know?
1: strong, feminine, has yeah. a close female friend. Right. And yeah, it's not a sex thing. Yeah. Um,
0: yes. Yes. Oh, uh, it was funny. One of the things I picked up from watching the extras was they said, literally, one of the only comments we got from Feggy when we handed him the script was like criticisms. He says this needs like four hundred percent more goose in it. <laughs> so they went back and rewrote it with a lot more of goose <laughs> anyway, we're moving on. We already we did a long podcast on the show on, on our uh, their final watch podcast that I appeared on the episode talking about Game of Thrones season Eight and specifically oh. the last episode, but it is available now digitally. And it looks gorgeous digital. If you like, had trouble, a lot of people had trouble, especially with the episode The Long Night, watching it. And part of that was due to streaming buffering issues. So if you want to see it without that, hey, the digital edition's out, the 4K Blu ray edition's coming out. There you go. But you can, if you get nowadays, when you get digital stuff, it includes the bonus features, which is cool. And yeah. this has. The best bonus feature of any of the Game of Thrones season, which is a feature length documentary about the entire filming of season eight, that they had like a whole documentary crew there from day one. And we're like, we're filming this entire thing. It's like an hour and 53 minutes of like watching. How do you, I mean, regardless of how you feel about Game of Thrones season eight. It is the biggest undertaking in television history. It is the most expensive undertaking. It's the most wide-ranging. It had the biggest cast. It had the biggest everything in any season of television ever made.
1: I don't actually view this as a season. I view this as... Six movies? Six movies. (laughs) You know, uh, of varying genres that just follow the same characters. Because I think the shortest episode is an hour and 15 minutes. Yeah, something like that. Like I'm pretty sure I had a movie in the stack it was shorter than that. So, like, yeah, they're all feature-length movies. Uh,
0: I really did enjoy it. I do agree with the criticism. It feels rushed. It does feel rushed, and I think they easily could have gotten another three seasons out so, of this, uh, and and it would have been better, but I don't really have on the whole specific criticism with the big decisions. Yeah, like... Uh, like I'm like, I... Yeah, most of this worked for me, and I don't want to go on into uh, exactly. about it at length, because we did go on about it at length, but I just mainly wanted to focus so people could see... Know about why it was worth owning for this documentary, which is which I watched the whole thing and it was so worth watching, it's very enlightening. Uh, And then there's also a about 17 minute piece on the behind the scenes how they filmed The Long Night, which obviously was super complex in and of itself fighting versus
1: the Night King. And honestly, so I I, again, I'm not going to go into much detail either. I loved the heck out of this season, and aside from the fact that I could have used a couple of episodes to let stuff land. I also had no problems with the vast majority of what happened. The long night showed me the way they introduced the the army of the dead. I have never seen that before. I was actually really impressed with the way that played out from a visual standpoint of them just being this wave of quiet uh, zombies coming at them.
0: Yeah. No, Um, it was a very, it was, it was a chancy way to do it. And I'm not sure I'm, I was 100% sold on the end, like, results. Yeah, But I see what they were after, and I kind of admire what they were trying to do. Uh, like, I think people were too treating it as if they that was an accident or something. It's like, no, they knew exactly what oh, they were doing. I, I like, like, you it. just – if you didn't like it, well, I, I can't blame uh-huh. you, but – a lot of people did like it for the very reason of the, the their intention of what they were trying to create I, there. I feel like
1: the vast majority of this entire... And this is the last thing I'll say about it, then I'll, I'll let us move on. But I feel like almost the entire season can be described as this was a really chancy, risky way to do that. And it, it worked for you, it didn't. Frankly, I... I think episode two of the season might be my favorite episode of the entire series.
0: I thought it was pretty great. Yeah, yeah. but that's because it, it, that one rewards you with a lot of,
1: like, feel-good character well, beats. <laughs> that and I, 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 my favorite part of any epic action war film is the, okay, you know, we got, like, an hour before the shit hits the fan. We're all probably going to die, so we're honest with each other for the first time ever. That's always my favorite part of war films. So, to have... A feature-length movie of that was divine. So our next film is about a
0: small party of friends who are all in a dance troupe together, who find out, unfortunately, well into uh, the experience that they've all been heavily dosed with some sort of very intense psychedelic drug, and almost no one is handling it well. The film is called Climax – and when I found out it was by Gaspar Noe, I was like, oh, I got to see this fucking thing.
1: <laughs> I'm almost aggravated with you for giving me this movie. <laughs> so, like, I, Gaspar No is, is... Not everybody is a Gaspar No guy. I, I am not. Yeah. Uh, he's like Lars von Trier. I respect the shit out of him. And I get that... I get why people like his movies. I've never actually watched any of his movies except for maybe Irreversible, where I had an actual emotional reaction to the story. It's always me watching it going, I, I kind of feel like I should be on Mushrooms watching this movie.
0: But <laughs> the point climax. of watching his movies is to not need Mushrooms.
1: <laughs> <laughs> this is no different. I, I will say that, like the rest of his movies, he... He kind of does an amazing job shooting this movie. The The movie opens... Well, first of all, the movie has no real narrative beyond what Chris has already said. That is the yeah, movie. It's brilliant. There's um, some little subplots here and there, but, but nothing that's very complex. So like, the movie opens with, I think, a 30-minute shot that is mind-blowingly amazing. And I was hooked from that... Very first second. The longest shot is
0: 42 minutes
1: long. And so I was totally into it, was watching everything, was liking all the characters. The dance was amazing. And then he kind of finishes that section of the movie and goes into a... It's when he starts building up the characters, basically, after that initial dance. And the way he shoots the movie is like a boring PBS interview where it's just two characters framed flat against a wall lit like a boring PBS interview and... Really? It's that... I didn't get that lighting thing at all. There were a couple that were really interesting because they were standing next to really interesting lights, but the vast majority of them were like just standing against a brown wall. And I was like, oh, the the light's right there and the light's right there and there's your shadow on the wall and, and it's just boring and it's 25 minutes of that straight and I never recovered from that. And so even when the movie got into the more psychedelic elements of it, uh, I was already not enjoying myself. I was pulled out of the movie completely and and uh, this is one that I kind of ended up doing the the the, the half-again speed for like the last 30 minutes of the movie. Uh, when
0: we reviewed this we I'm pretty sure we called out and said, I don't know if I'd ever be able to recommend someone watching this at home. Like most Gasper No, it is made for being trapped in a dark room with it at full volume with as big a screen as possible, where it becomes so unbelievably intense, you can barely stand it. But that's exactly what he's going for. And it doesn't really work on a small screen. Like I, I don't see this is the type of I mean, unless you've got like a really big TV and a great sound system and it's the middle of the day, so you can blast it the volume super loud. That's the only way to watch this movie or really any Gaspar Noe film. It's meant for
1: sort of like he's he's like the director of shock and awe. I'm I'm really impressed with what he's done. He he's made a career operating outside of the major studio system, Mm -hmm. making movies that are arguably his movies the way he wants to make them. And without having to compromise his vision in any way, shape, or form, uh, the dancers do a great job. I don't really feel like anybody turned in a bad performance. It's just that Gaspar knows movies are explicitly not for me. Yeah. If you are the kind of person who really enjoyed Into the Void or Love or Irreversible, check this shit out. You're probably going to just be tickled fancy by it. Yeah, a lot you'll, of, you'll love it. A lot of his fans but, think this is his best movie, but... Quite frankly, if, if you if you've ever watched any of those movies and didn't just fall madly in love with it, this is not for you.
0: Alright, so here's the weird part. In America they're only put out a DVD of this. And this film is definitely designed for a high-resolution yeah, yeah. format.
1: This should have been, been a nation.
0: It's movie. bizarre that Lionsgate, got the distribution rights here, released a crappy DVD with one solo small bonus feature with uh, Sophia Botella, who's the only recognizable I, star in it. I was it. just looking her up. Right. Uh, d- talking about the film. In Europe... Arrow put this out with a slew of extra features on Blu ray, including audio commentary with No, which alone I would like to own for. Uh, 14 minutes on an Antidote to the Void, which is the 2018 interview with No, uh, which uh, being kind of using No style wackiness to do. Performing Climax, which interviews the cast members. Uh, the Sounds of Climax, which is definitely a very audio oriented type film. Uh, there's a thirty minutes a video essay, the films of Gaspar Noe, by this writer, who takes a look through all his movies. Uh, there is a uh, a apparently t- thirty two short films by celebrated filmmakers from around the world, uh, and there's kind of like a trailer for this. Um, and there's music videos uh, that No directed here and. The theatrical trailer. Just the one... Why would they not release that here? Arrow really, I don't I understand no why idea. Lionsgate would not want to use Arrow's... Like, just pay them a little bit of money. Fucking... I I don't understand. Yeah, because
1: Uh, Noah's a niche filmmaker.
0: Well, speaking of niche filmmakers, our next filmmaker put out a movie uh, called Broken Flowers. He's one of my favorite American indie filmmakers, Jim Jarmusch. Yes, me too. I think he's... I I don't think I've seen a Jim Jarmusch film I haven't enjoyed on some level. Agreed. Ones I like more than others... But Jarmusch is one of those guys, if you don't get it, if you don't like Jarmusch, I mean, I would say the same thing No, I know people who see Jarmusch films, they're like, this is so boring. What do you even like about this? (laughs) And, like, it's really hard to explain what it is about Jarmusch that is so appealing.
1: It's meditative, but in this beautifully quiet, quirky fashion. I was trying to describe Jarmusch to a friend when I was describing this movie because, like – yeah, I agree. Jarmouche is just like Von Trier, is just like no, in that he makes explicitly the movies he wants exactly the way he wants to, operates his entire career for what I can tell outside of the studio system, and you either dig his movies or you don't. Mm. And they like they all kind of pick a unique musical vibe and stick with it. And he tends to have these very meditative, melancholy characters who are going through massive life upheaval, but also never really express it. It's always very understated and internalized in every movie he's ever made. And aside from that, and the idea that he shoots these really hypnotic driving sequences, that's like the only real connection between all of his movies. They're all in drastically different genres, but Uh but they're all... Unquestionably, Jarmoosh movies. This is the only.
0: Um, no, I'm sorry. There's one other I haven't seen. This, this on Broken Flowers had been the only narrative film by John uh, I hadn't seen. The, the Limits. Or yeah, Limits or, uh, of Control yeah, I haven't seen that is the one, only other one I've never seen. I've never even had it put in front of me. But I've seen all his other films, most of them more than once. I've never seen his documentaries. He did one on uh, uh, oh, Iggy, right the, Iggy Pop called Gimme Danger. And he did one about Neil Young, which was a tour documentary called Year of the Horse. But, so, but I've seen all his films, like I said, many multiple times. Uh, I've been very much looking forward to seeing this 2005 film. It was kind of very early in the sort of the Bill murray sense, The Bill Murray phase. uh, Like the the renaissance of Bill Murray coming back from being the guy who does just okay comedies like What About Bob to the guy who makes these thoughtful, artfully made comedies with people like Jarmusch and Wes Anderson. And
1: it's interesting, when this movie came out I avoided it because The marketing was terrible I I found that I have a hard time with some real world like no this person is like really fucked in real life kind of things because it just hits too close to home for me sure so uh, now that I've seen some Jarmusch I was able to go into with an open eye and basically Bill Murray is a wealthy retired guy who got money in computers and now he just has, sits around in tracksuits and tracks yeah, he, drinks coffee, he's basically <laughs> kind of womanized his way through life. And so he's alone. And his only friend is his next door neighbor who is the opposite is played by Jeffrey Wright, uh, who does a great job. Who's kind of poor, works three jobs, has four kids, loves his wife and is really colorful. And after being broken up with again, um, Bill Murray finds a letter from one of his previous girlfriends who says, hey, so we were together 20 years ago. We had a kid. I never told you. I've raised him, and he's not home when I came home today. I think he's trying to find you. I just want you to be ready. The problem is, it's not signed. Don't (laughs) say who it is. There's no indication. and So with the prodding of his friend, he Goes out with a, a, a map quest itinerary and five of the four. women, four of the women he dated twenty years ago, and the movie is a series of vignettes as he visits each of these women and doesn't ever really tell them why, and is just trying to find out, "Were you the one who sent the letter?" Right, and. Like, I, I, and each one is a wildly different experience. So like I, I want to throw out that the movie really isn't about him dealing with potentially having a kid, at least on its face, because he never tells any of them. And uh, it's not about whether or not he meets the kid. And it's really just about him seeing the impact and how these women have changed and also... How he has changed. He's kind of feeling sad about his own life yeah. and the decisions.
0: Looking back at the decisions he made, uh, but not even that is terribly overt. It's just like I said. It's kind of meditative road trip movie with Sharon Stone, the the ladies in question, Sharon Stone, Francis Conroy, Jessica Lang and Tilda Swinton, with plenty of other big-name actors appearing along the way. Because including,
1: Jarmusch, with, yeah, like, amazing Christopher actors. Christopher
0: McDonald, uh, uh, Julie Delpy, Chloe Sevigny, uh Mark Weber. It's it's a, just one of those movies that, if anything, you might be a little frustrated at the end, but welcome to Jim Jarmusch well, films, where they often don't really give you the ending you were expecting, or maybe even an ending at all. Uh, but it be, I think it emphasizes the whole... This is not a plot Movie. This is a character movie. And the elements of it that were a plot that kind of set the character on his journey, it is all about the journey. It is not about that destination. And
1: there's a lot of stuff that isn't ever really called out, but there are hints there. Like, did you catch that? I'm pretty sure the, uh, the second girlfriend, I think she's in an abusive relationship. Mm-hmm. Like, there's just a little thing when her that she's married with a husband and he touches her and the way she pulls away right. it feels very much like a woman who is uncomfortable being intimate with him. They, they never mention it after that. It's just a thing that is seen and then they move on and it's just kind of an, another stitch in the tapestry that is this movie
0: and it's just so well shot and it's so well scored and it's got so many great songs in it and all the performances are different and interesting and even very different for the actors doing these roles even for Bill Murray who like i said at this point this kind of quietly funny character was not bill murray's thing no. you know this it became his thing but it was not really his thing yeah it, it,
1: it it's he's kind of playing his character from lost in translation it's that very similar type of person but i'm pretty sure this is this after lost in translation i don't know i think it's i think it was probably uh, after actually but i'm not sure it's it's that kind of just guy who's reached the phase of his life where he is and is going I, i guess this is what life is now
0: uh, so the Kino Lober put this back out it's a gorgeous transfer there's an extended sequence uh, where he's on the bus and he's listening to uh, two girls talking on the bus it's, uh, that's kind of silly but it's worth checking out there's four minutes and 20 seconds uh, with insights from Jim Jarmusch talking about his process as a filmmaker and artist specifically about the farmhouse sequence uh, there's outtake seven minutes and 40 seconds that's kind of edited together like a music video
1: and then a theatrical trailer but and- Sorry, you mentioned mentioned the farmhouse, and that reminded me. There's a great amount of really clever color work in this movie with the color pink. Uh, the because the, uh, the letter itself is on a pink piece of paper. And so when he's going through this search, he's specifically looking to see if any of these women like pink. And so every single one has pink just scattered all throughout. It's really fun to watch him play spot the pink thing everywhere he goes. So our final film is the nightcomers. Now I had never heard
0: of this. And when I read the description, just by the simple fact that I had never heard of this told me, this is probably not very good. But what it was, I kind of had to see for myself. I'm sorry, what are you asking me? I, I, are we not talking about Portrait in Black as well? Oh, did I skip Portrait in Black? Shit, I forgot to put it on the list. Okay, we're our next to last film is <laughs> The Nightcomers. Now, I, I'm not going to spend too much time on this because I really strongly disliked it. But let me just tell you <laughs> why I wanted to see it. This is a prequel... To so Henry James's *The Turn of the Screw*, which you've seen the movie version, is wonderful. It's called *The Innocents*. Uh, apparently, this was, in fact, based on a proper prequel novel, uh, which I'm pretty sure was not actually written by Henry James, but I could be wrong. Um, *The Turn of the Screw* is considered like one of the all-time great early ghost story novels. Um, it's been adapted in various forms. Even on Star Trek, you know, I mean, like everybody's adapted versions of it, taking yeah, it ideas is. from it. But the idea of this director, Michael Winner, who is a relatively well-known uh, director and a, a critic, getting Marlon Brando to play the lead role in this prequel story where it's the, young, the two young kids from Turn of the Screw and watching the characters that are the ghosts in Turn of the Screw, but they're alive here, played by Marlon Brando and Stephanie Beecham, which have a sub-dom relationship yeah, like, and have crazy kinky sex. It's weird, so... And I, he's got this bizarre, exaggerated Irish
1: accent. It's like, oh, lassie! <laughs> I was like, you're right. I, I can't say this is a good movie, but I kind of... I, I almost want to recommend it to people because it's... <laughs> It's shot like a made for tv movie like i was convinced halfway through it's made for tv but with surprisingly graphic subdom sex and there are a couple of scenes of violence that are some of the most graphic and matter-of-fact violence i've seen in a cinema movie in, in cinema it would it kind of floored me when it started happening yeah and like so so it's you're right it's it's not a good movie But it's so weird that I kind of feel like if you're into that weird 70s cinema, you should still check out. Just maybe get some beer or smoke a joint or something. Right. You'll probably enjoy it quite a bit. I mean, if you're a
0: big fan of Turn of the Screw, well, you still won't like it, but you'll be more interested. Because it definitely is like... I mean, it's the story of those two people that are already dead in Turn of the Screw and our ghosts and what happened to them. And, and you know they're going to die, but their story is fucking wacky. Yeah. Like, they're like, it is like, I mean, because it's a period piece and you really don't expect it to keep going to this crazy, like, dude tying this girl up th- and having weird, kinky sex with her. You're like, what is happening right now? <laughs> well, at the same time, he's he's like, the kids love him and are just like... <laughs> Because he tells them all these crazy bullshit facts about things and life, and and then the kids are like little murderous—they're sociopaths. Yeah, they
1: have no emotion.
0: Yeah, it's—I don't know how to explain it. There, the the film has its defenders. I will never be one. I certainly don't see myself. I can see my—the only reason I can see going back and watching any part of this again is if, like, I don't know, I started working for the Alamo and I was doing the clip shows for stuff because there's clips from this thing that are. so fucking bizarre, you're like, somebody needs
1: to see, see it. I, I can see this playing in a weird cinema kind of thing where you get a bunch of friends together and talk shit about the movie while you watch it because it, it does progressively get stranger and stranger and stranger. And because it is a period film, you really don't expect them to turn the fucked upness to 11. And yeah. oh my god, they do, they do.
0: Uh, There's an audio commentary by the director. There's a separate audio commentary by film historian Kat Ellinger. There's an introduction by the director for a minute and a half and then teaser in the trailer. So not a huge amount here, but it is is what it is. 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 (laughs) Uh, Our last film is Portrait in Black. This is another 1960 neo-noir thriller film directed by Michael Gordon. And starring the really awkwardly cast Anthony Quinn...
1: Oh, I'm glad you thought that, too.
0: I just, like... I mean, obviously, Anthony Quinn has been in a lot of great movies, given a lot of great performance, but why the fuck is he the lead in this movie? Like, he does... has no... Playing a romantic lead versus Lana Turner, you're like, I don't see it. I, I don't see it at all. <laughs> um, but, so why don't you tell the story it's been a little while so, so this basically
1: one. this is the other rich powerful asshole movie we have and so a lot of turner is married to a magnate of transportation maybe he owns a bunch of companies he is on his deathbed and is micromanaging everything including her entire life and the actor whose name i've already blanked on um, a Lo- he, uh, Lloyd Nolan, no, no, the, the guy playing the, the, the husband. The lead. Oh, the lead. Anthony Quinn. Anthony Quinn. Yeah. Uh, he plays the husband's doctor. Like, like you're. I come to your house every day and check on you to make sure. Right. And he is secretly having an affair with Lana Turner. Um, there's also there's a daughter who I think was from a previous marriage. Yeah, Sandra day. Okay. Uh, who oh, the, is the famous Sandra Dee? Who is in a relationship with an actor who I. John Saxon! Think, thank you, John. From Nightmare Saxon. on Elm Street. <laughs> who, who looks really weird in his He's twins. so young, yeah. <laughs> but, um, I was like, I had to look it up. I was like, is that John Saxon? <laughs> so, so basically, uh, Anthony Quinn decides, you know what? I kind of hate this guy. He's a terrible human being. I'm going to murder him. I think we can murder him. And we can do it in a way that we won't get caught. And for some reason, he tells her. And so, like, maybe five minutes later, yep, they kill him off screen. And then after the fact, they're trying to kind of hide their relationship. But
0: obviously, they're going to end up together. I thought it was that they didn't know who killed him. No, no. Because no. I was, like, very distracted one point, because I got the idea that, like, they didn't know who killed him, but they re- both
1: realized no, it's no. going
0: to look a lot like they did it uh-huh. if it comes no, out no. that they were he, having he an affair. He killed
1: him. He, he put an air bubble in his blood.
0: Right, no, no, no. Him. I heard him describe He could do that. And then she said, no, do not do that.
1: There, and there's a scene right before they walk in where they're like, we're doing this. And then they walk in and shut the door. And then he's dead the next scene. Okay. I get so, it. so then they get a letter that says, congratulations on your murder, Mrs. Whatever. <laughs> and they proceed Is to... Nice if they did in, that. in such in a, in a dramatically short amount of time, completely unravel and start freaking out about who could have possibly sent the letter, and you know we got to kill them too, and the movie kind of does the noir thing where it snowballs into more and more crime and more and more dramatic stuff happening right and I didn't really like this movie. Me neither.
0: Like, oh, yeah, it, and the limo driver, played by Ray Walston, who is totally playing this for flat-out comedy, but no one else in this movie yeah. is playing comedy, and it's very awkward and misplaced. I thought this was well, a, the, a
1: really thoroughly mediocre the noir really film. really disjointed. Everyone has their own plot lines, and you could have cut a third out of the movie and it wouldn't have affected anything. Yeah. And then there there's a twist that... So horrendously invalidates everything that came before it that it pissed me off. Yeah, it's just like, annoying. Like I, I, I tr- I'm pretty forgiving of these older movies because they're of course going to be kind of racist and sexist no matter what. Because yay, America sucked. Um, <laughs> but. Uh, it's so horrendously offensive to women and how the white char- character is handled that, like, by the end of this movie, I I think I audibly said, I just, fuck you, movie. <laughs> I mean, I have a lot of, like, if the movie's good,
0: whatever. It was 1960. That shit was, like, I mean, you can't apply later standards on something from that many decades ago but it's it's but not good it's but it's not good it's uh, and like i said one of the biggest problems is like it seems like lana turner and anthony quinn couldn't stand each other like like seemed to almost physically recoil from each other yeah um he is so badly cast in this, and he's a good actor. What he's doing here, I have no fucking idea. He looks like he should be next in line to play Frankenstein, well, not play a romantic
1: and, lead. And her character is this super weepy, emotional lady who just lets him take the lead and everything. And it, it's a waste of her acting because if she was in any way had any agency in this movie, it would have been more interesting. Mm-hmm. If she, like, she should have been the one going. Yeah, let's do this.
0: This is uh, notable for... It was the last performance of a uh, very well-known uh, Asian-American actress, Anna Mae Wong. It was her last Ooh. performance, <laughs> uh, who is playing, indeed, a role that almost every time she comes on screen, they're like, dong! Yeah. She is the
1: definition of the inscrutable Asian maid. Just... So, yes, neither one of us can
0: recommend this movie. It was not... And we love, both love noir movies, and this is just not yes, very good. It. Uh, it's got an audio commentary by two film historians, and that's it. But uh, that is it for both that movie and for Digital Noise. Sorry that one was long. We had a lot of movies to cover this week. Uh, what are you going to do? Sometimes it just works out that way. But we'll be back soon with more movies, more Aaron. Is there any place you want to tell people to, to check you out online or anything uh, like that?
1: You can follow any me projects? on Twitter. I am at Father Baldor, and... That's about it right now. I have a couple of projects, but they're not something that I want to put out there yet. (laughs) You can't know. You're not cool (laughs) enough to know. (laughs) Fuck you guys. You're not coming. (laughs)